a lot of ways to create sticker shock when it comes to healthcare spending in the U.S. And last week, there was another example of expenditure news that set a lot of people and predictions spinning. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, reported that Medicare and Medicaid will have to shell out some $1.8 trillion, up from $847 billion right now by 2022. Now, this prediction isn't the only one out there, and many researchers and policy analysts also stand by projections that are more encouraging, especially as health reform continues to be implemented. But there's no arguing with the growing consensus that unless and until those paying the bills notice something different heading in another direction, we are not yet in the neighborhood of making substantial progress. The question is, can healthcare leaders and frontline improvers heed this challenge in some new, more accelerated ways? Are there some promising models everyone should be studying? That's our discussion on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. If you're attending WIHI for the first time, a special welcome to you on this program. We try to headline and highlight cutting-edge improvement innovations, and we're always excited by endeavors and thinking that keep pushing the envelope of what's possible. It's my pleasure to welcome Don Verwick to WIHI. Since Don was last on the show, he's been to Washington and back, having been appointed to lead the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid in July 2010, and that's a position he held until just this past December. Don Berwick co-founded and led IHI as its president and CEO for 22 years. He's now doing a lot of writing and speaking and coming on shows like this one, lucky for me and us, and contemplating his next steps. He's also doing a lot of uh, thinking about next steps for healthcare. So we're thrilled to have him here in the studio and to talk with all of you. Welcome, Don. Thanks for having me, Madge. All right, terrific. On the phone, and uh, somebody that Don knows well, uh, we hope uh, many of you are familiar with him as well, Jerry Shea. He's the assistant to the president of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, AFL-CIO, a position he's held since 1995. And we'll get uh, Jerry's slide coming up. Uh, there he is. Okay. Welcome, Jerry. Shea leads the Federation's work on healthcare and retirement security and presents the experience, views, and concerns of working families on healthcare and retirement issues. Jerry has also been actively engaged in quality improvement through his work with NQF, the National Quality Forum, the Joint Commission, and the Aligning Force for Quality Initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So welcome to WIHI, Jerry. Thanks, Madge. I'm uh, delighted to be able to join you today. Terrific. Where do we find you? Are you in Washington or some other city? I'm in uh, sunny and uh, moderately warm Washington. Okay, there we go. Spring is on the way. All right, so let's get started. And if you've just joined us, you definitely are in the right place. This is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, and my guests are Don Berwick and Jerry Shea. So, Don, I'm going to start with you. Many listeners to this program have heard you speak of urgency before. Uh, some of your celebrated IHI National Forum speeches, including those focused on IHI's campaigns, but on other topics, too, spoke of an urgency to implement interventions that are known to prevent or reduce harm and to spread changes widely. Now you've come from 17 months in government, and you've got urgency on your mind again. So is it the same kind of urgency, or is it something new? 
Um, well, we've used the sense of urgency in rhetoric for decades, actually. In healthcare, you can find papers 30 years ago that talk about urgently we need to change. But this does feel new to me. It feels different. Um, throughout my career uh, here at IHI, I have always felt a clock ticking around quality that, uh, for example, patient safety issues, you can almost – I can hear in the back of my mind the injuries to patients that need to be stopped, and that's ongoing as we speak. That form of improvement is crucial. It affects the reduction of suffering and protecting people. Uh, but now uh, I think there's another equally urgent task, and that has to do with another dimension of quality, which is cost. For any mature industry, part of any mature leadership system or production system, uh, one regards the cost of production itself as a quality. That is, it's susceptible to the same kinds of change and improvement that any other property of a system, including its safety or its waiting times or its effectiveness are. Given where we are now in American social policy with the economic crisis we face, not just in healthcare but but across the economy, uh, it is now urgent that healthcare costs be addressed as a primary goal among the qualities of healthcare, I've never, I've never seen that. That um, I've never seen things seem quite so so dire as now, and the risks are phenomenal. If we aren't able to do this, I'm starting to believe some pretty bad things are going to happen to the healthcare system uh, that we care about. So bad things such as well, the country cannot afford to keep paying this ever rising bill for healthcare. It's taking money from other very important endeavors. If you're on the government side is taking money from government-supported schools and the arts and, and roads and other important things to use our money. If you're on the wage-earning side, if you simply go to work every morning, it's taking money right out of your pocket that you, you really have other uses for. Uh, so we will have to reduce costs. If we can't do it through improvement, the agenda of IHI, the agenda of the improvement movement, if we can't reduce costs by improving production and care, which I think is the right way to do it, then we'll be taking things away from people. We'll be reducing benefits. We'll be reducing uh, eligibility for coverage. We'll be shifting burdens more and more onto people that can't can't pay. And really, most significantly for me, the thing that worries me the most is we'll take things away from the poor because people in, in very stressed circumstances uh, have less political clout than those who will seek to maintain their right to health care. Mm-hmm. Before I uh, turn to Jerry, who I think has some interesting illustrations of, of some of what you're talking about, when you uh, first heard you sort of uh, kind of frame things in this particular way uh, in December at IHI's National Forum, and I assume you've been sort of repeating some of these thoughts um, in some of your interviews now, what sort of response are you getting uh, when, when you speak of this? Depends on who I'm talking to. I think those of yeah. us who work in health care are rather well aware of the level of waste and uh, inefficiency in healthcare, and which, by the way, hurt patients as well. We're talking here about forms of of, uh, of waste of resources, drivers of cost that aren't helping people at all. They're adding obstacles. They're causing more suffering, not less. So some are aware of that. Those I think who give healthcare are somewhat aware of it. I have been surprised, though, in interviews and conversations I've had with the lay public as to how little knowledge there really is about the extent of the opportunity for reduction of cost by the improvement of care. That's not that's not something people seem to understand. They're, they're rather surprised. 
so that there's something going on in the system that if the system changed in certain ways uh, as opposed to just seeing it as budget battles, for yeah. example. Whenever you talk about cost reduction in healthcare, most people, most lay people, I would say, they they hear you're going to take something away from me. I will be worse off if we reduce costs. And I think the really important lesson for this country is that that is not the case, that there are ways, I think, significantly, dramatically to reduce the cost of care uh, by improving the experience of patients. And that's the agenda I would focus on. Okay, thanks, Don Berwick. Jerry Shea, now turning to you from the AFL-CIO. Um, I had the opportunity and the pleasure of uh, doing some planning with Don and Jerry uh, prior to this. And uh, Jerry has a lot of facts on the ground um, <laughs> that I think explain exactly kind of this, the situation right now. So I guess, Jerry, uh, I, it's my sense that you share the sense of urgency with Don, and perhaps you could explain why, and we'll, we'll try and get some, uh, some of these slides in here that you also feel kind of illustrate what you're talking about. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks, Madge. Um, and Don's point that uh, there's been a sense of urgency, or we've used those words, uh, about improving healthcare applies to cost as well. It's probably been 35 years that uh, uh, what people have seen as excessive inflation in healthcare has made headlines uh, and been a concern of both uh, employers that purchase healthcare and workers that contribute to the purchase of that healthcare. Um, but uh, the really striking thing to me is that the situation has become dramatically worse uh, in the last few years. Uh, and I would draw the parallel. Uh, in the private sector with the public uh, sector, the discussion that's happening in many states and also in Washington, uh, that has a very strong element of uh, we really can't afford as a nation to provide good health care. It's become there's no way to deal with the costs and so forth. And that you see that we hear that from employers and, and it gets reported to us from unions all over the country. Um, and the numbers uh, have, have been dramatic for years. I mean, uh, health insurance premiums for the past 12 years have been rising three times faster than worker wages and even faster than that when compared with inflation. Uh, but the latest data about what workers have to pay is what really is, is causing the alarm in my mind and in the mind of uh, many people that I know who, who deal with providing private health care and purchasing private health care. Um, you know, the, the deductibles, the average deductible has gone up about, uh, 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 about doubled for, uh, single, uh, insurance, individual insurance, uh, in the past, uh, seven years or eight years. And it's gone up 83% for families. Now, deductibles didn't start out so high, so that's not in itself maybe so alarming. But, uh, what is really the, the, um, the canary in the uh, coal shaft on this, I think, is the the rapid rise and now the predominance of so-called high-deductible health plans. High-deductible health plans came to existence over maybe 10 years ago, and the notion was that if we made people pay the first $1,000 is common definition, if they had individual coverage, or $2,000 uh, if they had family coverage, if they had to pay that cash up front before their insurance kicked in at all, that would put downward pressure on uh, on healthcare costs and would get the consumer involved. It was a theory that uh, we thought was uh, severely flawed, but it, it was the reason these came about. But the high deductible health plans grew very slowly um, at first. But in the last five years, uh, the number of high deductible health plans on average in the country has tripled. Um, 
And uh, for people in small groups today, half of them will have, statistically, half of them will have high deductible health plans. And these are people who are, you know, by and large, average wage workers, and they're being faced with this uh, deductible $1,000 off the top uh, for individual coverage or $2,000 for families. And uh, within that, uh, there's a very good percentage, some 28% uh, of the people in small groups have uh, individual coverage that's a $2,000 deductible and family coverage that's even higher than that. Um, so these these recent uh, developments are are quite dramatic. And um, I, I've seen a lot of references in all of the, the reporting that has gone on about uh, the uh, income uh, inequality that, that that is getting so much attention and um, the d- difficulties uh, maintaining the middle class standard of living that uh, was the pride of our economy for so many years. Uh, there's been references to the fact that high health costs uh, are really uh, a part of that. But I think what's now coming to the fore is that high health costs are a significant factor in in causing that problem. Um, so there was a health affairs study last fall that struck me. The authors calculated that uh, for a medium income family of four uh, in the period of, uh, I think, 1999 to 2009, uh, they looked at uh, health care inflation, that is the excess of inflation in health care compared with overall inflation, cost that family $5,400 over 10 years. Um, that is a significant amount when you put it in the context of uh, overall average wages uh, have been pretty much stagnant for 30 years uh, in this country. And there is uh, this great divide in terms of where the where the um, the growth of uh, of money and, and wealth is going. So um, it, it's really at a different level uh, of concern um, than we've had in the past. Uh, and I notice it with in dealing with large employers who have been strongly supportive of health reform. Uh, at the same time, they are implementing practices, and in our case, coming to the bargaining table and saying, we just can't pay for this anymore, and we're not going to pay for it anymore, uh, and pushing those costs across uh, to workers themselves. Thanks, Jerry. Um, and uh, we we have about, you know, five or six slides. I'm sorry if any of them were a little bit out of order, but I think they do illustrate something. Um, something I'll, I'll just throw into you and, and Don both that I'm struck by, you know, on a lot of these programs, WIHI, you know, we typically when we're showing graphs, we like to show run charts and we like to show improvements. And sometimes we're even able to show cost savings. This is a set of data. It's all out there. You know, all, many organizations are putting it out, Commonwealth Fund, um, uh, you know, Kaiser Family Foundation, et cetera. And it, it, street, it speaks of sometimes some sort of a disconnect, I think, even in the discourse uh, in that how do you go to work every day in healthcare and maybe think about some of these trend lines? Don, let me ask you that. It's a, it's a little existential, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. um, sure. I, I actually want to make a comment about Jerry first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've just heard what one of the things that's so attracted me to Jerry through the years. He's been a great colleague and friend. He's very generous to join us on this program. Jerry's one of the great spokespeople in the country for really getting health care to the shape it needs to be. He, he knows so much, and the country owes him a lot of debt for his leadership so far. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, th- I think from the point of view of the healthcare workforce, doctors, nurses, even, even managers, they look at those trends and feel just about as helpless as a layperson might. They don't know what to do. They're enmeshed in a... Um, 
a system that just forges ahead. Uh, some of it is great, new technologies that add tremendous uh, uh, leverage to the restoration of health and preservation of health. But they're also enmeshed in a system that has vast amounts of overtreatment and overuse, that that, uh, that has a lot of process inefficiencies built in, administrative burdens that they can't control, and I think they probably feel pretty helpless. If we're going to get on top of these trends, we're going to have to do for them exactly what we have to do with, with the safety movement, which is think as a system, realize we're in this together, that the changes have to be made systemically with the guidance and help of leadership. But the point here is to focus those energies on the job of reducing costs through improvement of care, and, and, and it's all together. We need to end that helplessness by, by, I think, embracing this together. I also think, and Jerry can speak to this, that we, it would really help us to have more discipline in terms of goals. You know, the canonical view of improvement is you never improve without an aim. We need an aim here. We need to make some kind of decision or some social contract about whether it's okay to let this go on or whether it just will stop. Mm -hmm. And that has to be led from... Uh, from the top. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Don. Jerry, and I'm going to really ask Don the same thing. Let, let's talk now briefly about um, we've got legions of healthcare improvers on this program um, who I'm sure <laughs> are wondering themselves, you know, sort of how to forge more of these connections. These are also the folks who are working very hard every day trying to make care safer uh, and more effective and also focused on ways. So I'd like to ask each of you to talk a little bit about where do do you think uh, we're kind of missing the mark, or what's the sort of adjustment that's needed in the way we're, we should be thinking about our improvement? We we talked about that as well in planning. Jerry, why don't I start with you? Well, um, yeah, I think what we need here is um, the the analog to uh, what's developed uh, within healthcare over the last twelve years in terms of the. Now, across the board, commitment to improving quality of care. You know, when the first IOM reports came out, uh, even people who worked in the system and had some sense of it didn't really understand the, the normity of the, of the variation and the quality problems. But that led to an internal conversation among stakeholders. Um, the simple expression which uh, it, it comes to me as being, well, we could really do better than this. And we set about doing better on it. And now... Uh, where, you know, five years ago, there was a, uh, maybe a tug of war about could we really measure healthcare quality? Uh, that's now concluded, uh, that we can. And there is a commitment. I don't go any place in the country and talk to uh, providers or people in healthcare organizations who aren't working very hard on improving the quality. Well, I think that we need to bring that kind of commitment to, uh, the issue of cost. Um, and even though it is very a very difficult one to to add on because of complex environmental factors uh, like the aging of the population and uh, health technology, um, it, it is one really that that flows directly from the wonderful paradigm that Don so often use, uses about think about the patient first. I believe that we have to think about what the patient can afford as well as the care of the patient first, and that's going to put us. Uh, on the right track. Um, so to me, the first element really is is leadership. Um, and, you know, I think some simple uh, innovative things uh, would be very helpful to sort of uh, just just show a different path. Um, you know, um, uh, organizations could work within a community context or work with individual 
employer purchasers or union funds and set uh, rigorous goals for uh, uh Costs. There are some examples of this that have been successful, but, you know, we could hold costs flat uh, for a year or two, uh, or we could allow just, you know, uh, half of the increase that we did um, last year. Those are very possible. And then, then I think the leadership in healthcare should make it part of their overall strategy to publicly and prominently report on those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you could imagine the uh, the the sort of sign in front of the hospital. Lots of lots of uh, construction sites have signs about the number of days without injuries, which have been very useful uh, in driving improvements in work worksite safety. We could have those kind of signs about healthcare costs and whatever metrics we we wanted to use. I just think simple things like that would would just help sort of stop people and say, gee, we've really got to think about uh, this differently. Jerry, and um, thank you for that, and I'm going to probe that just a little bit more. I'm going to go back to Don for a second. Uh, when we were discussing uh, today's program, you two spoke of two things. Don likes to talk about flooding the zone uh, in some way, and you both also agreed on the notion that there's some kind of a disconnect between lean and the way in which some of the organizations are going after lean and, and efficiencies and everything else, that there's some kind of separation around quality and lean, and maybe you could explain that. Don, why don't I start with you on that? Sure. Well, uh, uh, the flooding the zone idea, that that has to do with urgency. I think when I first started uh, thinking and learning about uh, quality improvement, process improvement, I was thinking uh, in terms of small-scale test pilots then scaling up to large-scale, that you learn your way. We've got to find a slightly different plan here. uh, We are really headed for some pretty steep cliffs, I think, uh, if we don't turn around. And so I'm, I'm thinking hard about ways of starting at scale, go, going going big at the start. One way is flood the zone. In my national foreign speech, I mentioned this amazing concept I heard in Sweden, in Jönköping, Sweden, which is uh, an IHI partner and does remarkable work. I asked the leader there, how are you so effective? How are you getting such amazing results? They're the best in Sweden, and Sweden's one of the best performing systems in the world. And, and uh, the, my colleague there, Jöran Hendrik, said, it's easy. We just do everything. And, and he wasn't joking. He means when they when they're they're comfortable with a portfolio approach to improvement, and I think we need the same thing here, just as we do in other areas like um, greenhouse gases. And we, there's no one answer; you have to have many. Um, in terms of quality and cost, uh, I think it's a maturation issue in a way. Often, when I visit uh, hospitals. Uh, I may be whispered, it may be whispered in my ear, you know, just remember the doctors here, they want to focus on care, not cost. They, they don't, they, they don't want to talk about cost. What I know is care and cost are the same thing if you think in process terms. That is the same process characteristics that produce, a, say, a defect, like an injury to a patient. They also add costs without benefit. Jerry was talking before about customer focus. That's the key here, that modern industries have learned that when you focus on the need of the person you're serving, you get more efficient, not less. You get you get lower costs, not higher in general. That's the whole secret behind value chain work and lean and lean production. So we need to somehow, and I think it's a little unfriendly at first, embrace this this property of the system. The cost property is is worthy of of, of our of our work. One of the problems uh, to close quickly is that. Um, a lot of the good work that has gone, say on lean production, which is luckily taking root in many parts of the country in healthcare and very good for patients, it reduces the costs of the producer. The hospital saves money, but I'm not actually sure that money ever gets returned to the people 
Jerry's talking about, people who are paying those numbers right out of their paycheck. And that piece of it, return the money, is another part of the agenda we've got to embrace. All right. Well, I'm going to pick up on that, I think, maybe just before we go to chat. And both of you can weigh in. Um, Don, what do you mean by return the money? Well, you keep looking upstream to where the payment is coming. Where is this $2.7 trillion coming from? And the answer is wages. There is really no other source of the money than what people get paid to do their work. Uh, and people don't realize that it's our money we're talking about here. They think it's someone else's, an insurance company's, the government's. It's all wages. Maybe it goes into taxes and gets paid, healthcare gets paid, or it goes into free care pools, or it goes into your share of the, of the employer premium, or it gets denied you in wage increases because the employer is paying more. It's all our money. Return the money to me means give it back to the people who do the work, um, and let them decide how to use it in their own lives. That's kind of the, the ultimate, answer. For government, I, mean, I just came out of government, to me, it, if you want to focus on that, uh, there's a lot of needs. Government has very important roles in this country. And when when we take money from education and give it to health care, we hurt education. And so even just within the government framework, we need to return that mm-hmm. to other uses. Thanks, Don. Jerry, thoughts on that before we go to chat? Uh, you talked about sort of the idea of uh, you know, put some signs out front and talk about not only what you're doing to reduce infections, but how much money you're saving. And, and I guess the, then the, the next step is, uh, who, who got, who got to, to reap some of the benefits of that saving? How, how do you think about giving the money back? Um, well, I, I think about it very much in terms of, um, the, the cliff that I fear that we're facing in terms of employers uh, just withdrawing more and more from uh, financing healthcare and saying somebody else has got to pay for this, whether it's the government's going to pick it up because I'll just stop my health plan or individuals just going to have to pay more and more and more and more. Um, I, I think that unless we can pretty quickly uh, have a good number of examples of where uh, purchasers and providers work together to hold costs flat or very small increases and actually aim towards lowering costs over time. Unless we can do that, I'm afraid that uh, employers really just are going to walk away from this. They, they, I think of it as we can't, uh, we can't solve the healthcare cost crisis in short order, but we could give people hope. <laughs> that there's a solution down the road that we are working towards in short order. And so that's the, the genesis of my <clears throat> simple ideas about signs and so forth. But uh, more significantly, it's going to be in a, in a dialogue between providers and purchasers and a, and a joint um, a commitment to do that. Um, the problem here is that this is, it is, um, the high costs are embedded in a, uh, not only the model of care that we deliver, but the business model on which our delivery systems are based. Um, you don't have to look further than any um, large uh, system in your area with the uh, continual uh, construction of new plant or addition of new machinery to, to uh, see that our model of, uh, of, uh, of, of healthcare business success is based on getting more and more market share and getting more and more market share by doing more and more things, having the best of this, or the, you know, the, the great example of that, um, and so it's just it's just a, it's a competitive model that drives costs up as opposed to holds costs down as it as it does in so many fields, um, and and essentially and initially this is going to require very strong leadership. 
from people at the top who say, just like we're making quality a priority when people a few years ago were skeptical about that, we're going to make cost reduction a priority uh, because it's really a question of survival. Thanks, Jerry. And just before, I, I actually want to fit in one more thing because it's something I know both of you are thinking about and we can point to. There are examples out there right now of purchasers who are working with employers. I think Don wanted to say something and maybe we can just kind of reference just to even hit on wh- where people might start looking and maybe we we can talk about that more in discussion as well. Don? Yeah, there are good examples. Before I go there, I want to, uh, yeah. if I may, ask Jerry to comment because we've had uh, conversations about this. In this regard, who 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 needs to get the money back? Uh, maybe maybe this sounds naive, but I sense a kind of uh, coalescence of interest between labor and uh, the employers. Um, they're on the same side of the table in this one, it seems to me, because uh, I mean, they'll decide later how to divide up the dividends at a bargaining table, but both now are ask, have the same request for which or demand of health care, which is get serious about it. Is that right, Jerry? Are, are we seeing a that, – That's absolutely right, Don, and uh, there's also – there's a level of commitment, and really it's driven by desperation. Uh, it's pretty simple, uh, but also a level of sophistication. Uh, for instance, you know, a few years ago, um, a lot of our organizations were very shy about having any direct conversation with their membership about uh, how uh, they're about the excess uh, in, in healthcare. Uh, that's changing very, very fast. Uh, and people, uh, union leadership, uh, and, and employers are saying, we don't, we don't, we, we, we won't do this in a punitive way, but we have to bring everybody's attention, uh, to cost. In fact, we found that the, the a- opposite of a punitive approach, uh, is really at the core of some of these design changes in our system so that, uh, we eliminate, uh, the copays and deductibles for, uh, a certain set of, uh, you know, preventative exams and, you know, whatever the regimen is to identify problems early and work on them early uh, that cause so, cause so much money later. But this is going to require uh, changes uh, from everybody, uh, again, just speaking on the on the private purchaser side. And at the moment, there is an effort that we're part of and many of the big business groups uh, who focus on healthcare are part of to uh, really uh, do a big outreach campaign to purchasers of all types, private purchasers of all types, uh, with the simple um, encouragement uh, that uh, as Medicare changes to value purchasing, private purchasers can and should do the same thing. And it means restructuring our partnership or relationships with insurers uh, because they've often said to us, well, here are the, here are the, the programs that we offer and you should choose among them. Uh, the purchasers need to assume more of the driver's seat and say, well, this is what we want to do. And we don't want to be out of step with the big changes that are going to happen, uh, in, in Medicare. Um, so there's an opportunity here that we've never had before. Uh, and I, it's being embraced, uh, at least at the leadership level that I deal with, uh, very enthusiastically. Thanks, uh, Jerry, Eshe, and, and Don Berwick. And maybe during the Q&A section, which I want to get to now, uh, Jerry might be able to also uh, share. He sort of uh, kind of sent along some materials to me, a uh, wonderful story about a local union that got very, very sophisticated about, you know, remember uh, Atul Gawande's piece, Hotspotters, it seems to me. This is a union, a local in Minneapolis that identified the hotspotters uh, in, in their midst as well and, and went about working on that very 
proactively. So, John, let's remind people about uh, chat so we can get uh, people's questions and comments in there. And depending on where we are when we've uh, finished up the program today, I just wanted to mention right away that Don has agreed to stick around for a few minutes. We might do a little bonus short video uh, with some additional questions and some discussion that we'll post to Facebook. But, John? Yeah, just a reminder, uh, when you're asking questions in the chat window, make sure that they're directed at all attendees. We've had some great questions that have popped up so far. I don't think we'll be able to get to all of them, but like Madge says, we'll be posting a video onto our Facebook page, and we hope that you'll uh, jump over there after the program or sometime later this afternoon when we'll have it up. I thought we'd start with a really good question from Matthew Albert, who asked, uh, how do we reconcile lean with the concept of flooding the zone, or we do everything, as Yoran said? All right. Thanks, John. And maybe I'm not seeing anything in my uh, chat screen right here, so make sure yeah. uh, that may just be me, but make sure everyone else is as well. Um, go ahead, Don. What do you think? <laughs> lean production, the Toyota production system, is a set of tools that allows one to look at processes and remove uh, waste, non-value-added activities from processes by understanding the value chain and, and empowering staff to do that. Uh, flooding the zone, you know, really taking the, the brakes off would mean doing lean everywhere. It would, it, it's a matter of the totality of the commitment to, to, to waste reduction, and it's perfectly con- uh, they're perfectly consonant ideas. The general notion is we I don't think we can get to the to the rescue we need uh, if we don't uh, exercise much more ambition and, and comprehensiveness about our approaches to, to process improvement and everything we do. John, are you seeing some other questions there, which I'm not seeing somehow in my screen here? We are seeing some questions. Where are people? Are people sending folks, these to all participants? are sending them privately to the host. So just a reminder, make sure that you click on all <laughs> attendees right above the chat box. The host needs to see your questions. That's, that's right. That's right. And, um, I'll send one out from uh, Ashley uh, Hamarth, who asked about yeah. um, um, bursts by midwives um, and home bursts and, and things like that and how they're not discussed as part of, uh, of cost uh, reducing costs. Um, I'll, I'll share this with the rest of the group, but um, it sounds like she's talking a little bit about options and how those aren't marketed as well. Is there any comment there? Um, go ahead, Don, and then Jerry. Well, uh, um, the, the costs we have, the, the, uh, the unacceptable costs that Jerry has uh, shown so clearly are properties of the way the system currently operates. So cost reduction is achieved through change. Uh, some of those changes are threatening. They're threatening to vested interests and status quo thinking. Uh, the issue around midwifery, for example, that has to do with scopes of practice and, uh, and uh, you know, guild thinking about restricting uh, who can do what in our care system. Without commenting specifically on midwifery, we can talk about that if you want, that we're going to have to get very creative about new roles for people, uh, really harnessing the imagination and the talent of the entire workforce uh, to deliver care, better care at lower cost. We do have evidence that midwifery-driven care, in fact, is in many cases better than systems that restrict midwifery, and uh, so that's an innovation we need to look at very, very closely. But we're going to have to open our minds that we're not going to get to the sustainability we need. I want to, um, I, while John maybe copies and pastes some of the questions that are coming in privately to him, again, please send them to all participants so we can all see them. Um, Jerry, I'm going to flip things over to you for a moment. I alluded to the fact that there are models out there, and you spoke a bit about some general efforts uh, in AFL-CIO and perhaps in labor uh, to be working uh, with uh, purchasers and employers. Virginia Mason is an example. Virginia Mason Medical Center out in Seattle is an example, and of 
a story that I'm familiar with of starting to very, very actively work with insurers and employers, uh, starting with some of the ones that were balking at Virginia Mason's own uh, costs uh, and wondering if they could continue to send uh, patients there. So um, what else are you seeing on the horizon uh, that looks promising in terms of models that people might focus on and study a bit more? Well, one match is the one you referred to when you referenced Atul Gawande's article about the hotspotters, and that is the very widely understood now idea that uh, a small number of, relatively small number of people account for such a large percentage of our health costs. It, it led the union that represents hotel workers and restaurant workers um, in New Jersey to, uh, on, just on a private basis, identify within their membership uh, those individuals who were the high cost individuals and uh, seek them out and, and give them special attention. Again, not in a punitive way, but in a way of, uh, of trying to help them understand the, uh, the extent of the problems that they face uh, given their conditions and to pay extra attention to them, uh, to make sure there were no cost barriers. Uh, to their seeing the clinicians they should see. Uh, and uh, as the article indicated, it, it, it showed very dramatically in terms of uh, a lower cost uh, than for that group of people than otherwise would have been projected. Uh, you, you referenced this uh, a recent example that just came across uh, my desk of, a, uh, of an operating engineer's uh, local in Minneapolis. This is a local of uh, people who run large uh, equipment on construction sites or uh, uh, power plants and boilers. Um, it's a 12,000-person local uh, in the Twin Cities, um, and they were facing the ultra-typical problem of just costs that were uh, were really uh, uh, skyrocketing a few years ago and making uh, the employers who did want to provide good coverage and pay decent wages really non-competitive. And so uh, the union locals decided they were going to tackle this and just started on their own to learn how to do this and identified uh, this same problem I just referred to of the small percentage related to the large percentage of costs uh, and brought someone in uh, who began to focus on that in a similar kind of way uh, using comprehensive uh, annual exams that were free of charge and uh, recruiting people to it. And uh, there's a story that we're going to post on our website about this because we were so struck by it. Uh, it will be, be up probably in a couple of weeks. Um, but they relate. Uh, they, they told us, you know, this was not easy to recruit union members to a different approach to this and to pay attention to the fact that they had serious problems that they needed to face, but that could be faced and, and it would improve their, their lives as well as save money, of course. And uh, they have had quite dramatic uh, results from that. So these, you know, these examples are around. And uh, for the couple I just mentioned, there are many, many more. Um, and the effort that I referred to before about reaching out to purchasers within our world is going to be we're going to put together put together a major campaign this year uh, to try to recruit all of our national unions to work with all of their locals and district and state level uh, leadership along these lines. Um, and and uh, again, we're going to do this in a pretty simple way. There are a number of different ways you can tackle these problems. Uh, we're going to have to learn some as we go. Uh, but there are proven ways where you could do this, and we are just going to urge very, very strongly uh, in, in um, uh, pretty straightforward terms 
the consequences if we don't do something about this problem now. Uh, thanks, Jerry. And I found some of the questions in the Q&A. Again, if you can send things to all participants, I appreciate it. A couple of people are asking uh, what is an understandable question about how do we go after this in ways that's not going to sacrifice quality and fears the minute you start mentioning money and putting your eye on that ball. So uh, let, let's put that one out there. The other one is whether I think somebody referred to bundling. I, I, I think what you're referring to is kind of global payments um, and, of course, accountable care organizations. All that comes in there right now. So let's let's start with the, the first one about making sure we get this right. Uh, Don was saying cost is quality. So in some sense, it's all got to be sort of part of the same vision. Uh, but fears, I think, even amongst improvers that uh, you start talking about money and we, we get it all wrong. Uh, well, I'll start. Jerry has better mm-hmm. answers than, than I do. But I, I would say watch it like a hawk. I mean, this is not a trust me situation. If we need to go after costs, the right way to do that is to reduce waste, not value-added services, not things that help patients, but continually take away things that hurt or don't help patients. But uh, to do that uh, blind is a mistake. We have to have very careful approaches to the monitoring and measurement of the well-being of the patient. The best of those approaches to me is to ask patients. I think that uh, metrics that allow us to hear the voice of the family and the the patient and the community about how they feel served are key. And luckily, we've had really good research, uh, much advanced. We really have advanced our ability to do that. Um, I also think we are in an era, thanks to uh, the National Quality Forum and others that Jerry and I have been involved in, of uh, getting more closer to metrics that matter, to, to, to really measuring things that are the are closely related to the outcomes and experience of patients. So, no, we, we have to have a thorough commitment to the monitoring of the well-being of the people who are being served by healthcare. As I say, the goal here is not to take things away from them. On the contrary, the goal is to have to end up with better care, more comprehensive care, more responsive care than we're starting with. And we should be, we should not tolerate, I think, uh, deception about that. What about global payments? There are a lot of innovations in payment can help along the way here. One of them is bundling of payment. That that's actually a it's a dimension of payment. Right. It's whether we're going to pay for, you know, do you pay for little pieces? Uh, you know, do you pay for the carburetor or do you pay for the car or do you pay for transportation? Each, each of those is a right. wider circle of payment. In the end, when you're organizing a system around value, you kind of want to get to the higher end of that scale, like transportation. In healthcare, that looks like this. At the at the micro level, we pay for little things. You pay for the paperclip, you pay for the gauze sponge, you pay for the or for the surgery. Bundling payment is a broader view. You pay for, say, surgery plus the following 60 days of care, which gets people thinking much harder about complications and avoiding complications. At the full spectrum, we get to capitation, where you're actually paying for the entire experience of a population of people uh, over a year, over over time. The country's not ready overall to move completely to, to the latter, but the, the broader the envelope of payment, the, the, the more systems can actually try to meet the real needs of people instead of uh, just producing volume. Thanks very much. Uh, Jerry, do you, anything you want to add there? A lot of folks are wondering about sort of, uh, you know, how do you get the buy-in? Uh, also, um, you know, where might be sort of the first opportunity or the first wedge almost to uh, give give some of the money back? What what might that look like in fact? Uh, any, anything you want to tackle there is fine. 
Well, I, I think Don makes a very important point here about these. These have to be. This has to be a rigorous approach with a commitment to both quality and costs, uh, and it can't be, uh, you know, nice talk about quality and, and a focus on the bottom line uh, only. And in fact, uh, those the people who've been working on this uh, for some time uh, really are deeply, deeply um, uh, convinced that the only approach. Uh, to controlling costs is by improving quality, that the only tolerable way our society uh, will go at this problem is along that road. And so that motivates them uh, to the kind of uh, orientation that Don says is so important. And they will uh, bend over backwards to assure people that this is not about taking things away from them, uh, but showing them uh, that uh, that the best care is not at all necessarily uh, the most expensive uh, care, um, and this and this this has to be a commitment between both the people who pay for care on one side and the people who provide care on the other side, and that's why I said before that it's so important to have the leadership. Uh, in both ways, and in a way, willing to take some risks, uh, not without appropriate safeguards, as as Don says, but uh, with some risks. You know, we've been very encouraged by the leadership in many of the professional societies, uh, in some of the national organizations that have begun to focus on uh, inefficiency uh, and waste as as a side product of uh, less than optimal uh, quality, um, and who are putting uh, their uh, their uh, positions uh, behind the idea of uh, looking at uh, and and uh, and promoting those those high quality uh, approaches that are also cost saving. Um, I think we're beginning to see this leadership emerge, but I think where the rubber hits the road is in local markets, uh, where there is still this competition model that's based on you know uh, more uh, and better, um, and so it it is it is. Uh, going to require change. There are some good examples of one that uh, I looked at recently was uh, two years ago in the Sacramento area of California, the big California public employees retirement system uh, uh, piloted a program, about 42,000 people involved, uh, where they had a, a restricted network and uh, they they did the contract with one system, uh, one uh, healthcare system, and um, they had an explicit goal of holding uh, holding costs flat in the first year and reducing costs uh, in the second year. And uh, they realized a twenty million dollar savings across that population uh, savings that is below below flat uh, within that time frame. Um, you hear similar stories. Uh, from the companies like IBM is really a leader in promoting uh, patient-centered medical homes. They've documented for years that this is a more effective, a very highly, very, very popular among their employees, and we've seen the same among union members, but also very effective uh, at reducing costs. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, I hope uh, anybody thank, thanks for all the questions and comments. There's a question. There's an interesting one here about the model in the state of Maryland, which has had a whole kind of rate setting uh, program. I don't know how many states remain in that ballpark. Many kind of threw them overboard in big deregulatory times. Uh, Don, what's your thoughts about that uh, in terms of what Maryland uh, has to teach maybe the rest of the country? 
Maryland's had quite a good experience. By no means have they solved the problems we're talking about, but they've got information for us from the from the mm. all-payer model that they've adopted. I think probably the better point I can make is that we are in an era where state-by-state initiatives are very, very important and I think really will contain a lot of opportunity for the country. If we find a way to give states a chance to try uh, with with absolute diligence about the well-being of beneficiaries, but to try different formats of uh, payment and regulation, I think I think we will learn quite a bit. And there are states that really want to forge ahead. I'm, I'm in touch with a number of them and I'm pretty excited by what I'm hearing. I'm not talking about states that just want to cut care or take things away. I'm talking about states that are, are thinking like we're thinking about about improvement of care. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are, there are innovations we can really learn from. There's a comment here. Uh, somebody is wondering whether things, uh, HCAPs, uh, value-based purchasing initiatives, or whether they're really going to genuinely help improve health care quality. I detect some skepticism or inhibiting it. Uh, this person thinks that efforts coming from Virginia Mason, ThetaCare, etc., cetera, uh, show maybe greater promise in terms of lasting improvements. So I, I guess I'll throw that one. Uh, Don does, Don's throwing it to you, Jerry. <laughs> Maybe we'll throw it back. Uh, but I, I, I guess there's a lot of um, – the jury's still out, I guess, on a lot of things. And um, people are still wrapping their minds around the initiatives and wondering really which one to, to get behind. Um, Jerry, thoughts on that? What do you, what well, do you, yeah, what do you see yeah, coming out of CMS? Yep. Well, it, it's, it's, it's fair um, to be to have concerns about this, and we're going to have to be cautious about it. But uh, the core notion uh, of purchasers, whether it's Medicare in the public sector or uh, private employers or union funds in our case, uh, purchasers being actively involved in the actual design of uh, both benefit programs and delivery system and networks, I think is so, so important here because I really think the entire um, our entire health system has suffered uh, from not having that voice. Now, maybe sometimes that voice is a harsh voice to hear um, if you're on the provider or the healthcare uh, organization side, uh, just trying to make ends meet. But unless we have that voice uh, fully in, engaged in this process, I don't think we're going to come up with the right result. I just don't think we'll hear that. Um, that sort of perspective, uh, because, you know, I, I think that the quality work over the last number of years at the national level and the organizations that, that uh, Don referenced, like the, in the National Quality Forum, this has been very different as a process than the regulatory approach. Uh, this has been a matter of bringing stakeholders around a table and challenging them to come up with solutions to problems. And it was a process of learning, first of all, uh, and compromise, secondly. Uh, but it has produced, I think, some significant um, uh, achievements in terms of structures and tools uh, to tackle these programs. And, and you know, just from my own perspective, um, I learned uh, in these discussions that uh, the first idea I had as a purchaser or wearing my consumer representative hat as a consumer representative, uh, you know, I, I learned it wasn't necessarily the best idea by a long shot and that it got better uh, when I was discussing that with providers uh, and people from healthcare organizations. So um, yeah. I think that there's we have no choice but to do something uh, 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 very aggressive about this problem. And, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that we can't do it. 
Uh, go ahead, Don. Uh, let me build on Jerry's comment. Uh, there, there's one thing embedded in Jerry's analysis I think is really crucial. In the public debate right now, that is the public policy debate, you're, of course, seeing a focus on Medicare and, to some extent, Medicaid. So there's a lot of storm and drong around exactly how to rescue Medicare and reduce its costs. That's a bit of a mistake. We're all in this together. And there is really no way for Medicare to become a healthy social insurance scheme. Uh, it's a healthier social insurance scheme that doesn't also involve improvement of care and reduction of cost in the private sector. It, it, it's all together and none at all. And, uh, and I, I, I really want to advocate for a shared agenda of commitment, public and private care, public and private insurance, uh, to... Uh, to, to solve these problems. Hmm. We're not going to do it separately. Thanks. Um, I, uh, that's Don Berwick, uh, you've been listening to, and Jerry Shea. We're, we're kind of heading to the top of the hour. We, we're just a few more minutes here. I do want to remind people that <coughs> Don Berwick is among the featured speakers at this year's International Summit in Washington, D.C., uh, coming up in March, uh, also along with IHI's president and CEO Maureen Bisignano and Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Ellen Goodman. Over 60 sessions on the latest thinking and practices on topics that are crucial in today's environment, very germane to what we're talking about today, new models of primary care, accountable care organizations, patient and family-centered care, and coordinating care across the healthcare continuum. And you do get a special discount if you enroll by tomorrow. That's Friday, February 10th. All the information is on IHI.org, and there's also a slide up here about that as well. All right, just a few really, I think, kind of Parting words, um, Don. We've had one of these, perhaps a little bit more headier kinds of conversations. Sometimes uh, people feel like they get off the show and they've got something they could maybe try out by next Tuesday. But let's keep in that spirit here. What would you do with a conversation uh, like the one that we had today? I'll ask you, and then I'll ask Jerry. Where would you take it next? Uh, two things occurred to me. One, Jerry's put a very interesting idea on the table. He mentioned this in preparation of this call, and that is a, a, a kind of new transparency about cost. He, he talks about uh, companies that say no, no work or injuries in the past yeah. X days. How about our costs? And I think that's a great idea. I think if we're going to elevate this conversation, let's make it transparent and make public commitments on this uh, very important social problem. Uh, the other thing, I want to speak to the professionals, the, the medical professionals on the phone, you know, doctors, nurses, pharmacists. I have come to think, especially after my time in Washington, that this is a time of uh, unprecedented uh, ripeness, uh, possibility for professional leadership. Everything will change. Everything will change if the professions own the whole problem. If, if doctors and nurses of stature begin to say there is a way here, we know it, we can have better care at lower cost, and both are our responsibility, and we will we will commit to that. I think that would change the whole game. Right now, it's a little bit too much. The payers yelling at the system saying, uh, get our costs under control, and people in the system saying, please don't give us so much trouble. Right, and don't do it too fast or too painfully, et cetera. Uh, Jerry, parting words from you. Jerry Shea. Um, yeah, I, I just would like to um, stress the importance of partnership, and uh, what I, because I've seen the uh, the fruit of partnerships in this area at the national uh, level, and uh, I think that we there are many many examples of that kind of partnership locally, but we just need to deepen those examples. We need to increase the contact between. Uh, providers and purchasers. And I want to just make the side point here. When I say purchasers, I mean people who are paying the money. 
we deal through insurers who health plans payers, uh, but it's really the people who, you know, as Don said, it's wages, um, intermediaries like employers. But um, those it's not just the insurers that are they are part of this equation, but but they're not really the uh, the, the representatives of uh, purchasers. And um, you mentioned Virginia Mason a couple of times. Let me just finish with a great uh, example of I think the kind of uh, partnership, um, at least conceptually, that we need. So uh, Rich Umdenstock, president of the American Hospital Association, tells this story about uh, a conversation between people at Virginia Mason and people in uh, Puget Sound, uh, a very active business uh, coalition and purchaser coalition there, um, where they, 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 the purchaser coalition said on one side, we have to do something about costs. We, we can't continue this way. And Virginia Mason said on the other side, we understand that the world is changing. We're ready for this. Let's talk about a five-year plan to do that not a one-year plan to do that. And so they worked on a timeline where this wouldn't be an abrupt change uh, for providers. It wouldn't be a shock uh, treatment. It would be something that could be worked out over time and where they could work out the kinks along the way. I think that's such an important example of partnership um, that it's worth uh, bearing in mind as we go forward. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Jerry Shea and Don Berwick and everyone who joined today. We are going to uh, grab some of the questions we didn't get to and uh, sit in the studio here with Don Berwick for uh, a few more minutes. Sorry, Jerry, you're not here with us in the studio, we'll, we'll, but we'll post this uh, video on Facebook. I want to remind everybody uh, that uh, next up on February 23rd, we have an interesting program coming up all about amazing new technologies that are putting a lot of uh, power and information in the hands of patients. Uh, we're going to be live from the MIT Media Lab talking about the new uh, medicine initiative there with John Moore and doc- Drs. John Moore and Dr. David Judge, who heads up this interesting thing called the Ambulatory Practice of the Future at Mass General Hospital. A uh, reminder that the webpage about uh, February 23rd, WIHI, is now live. You can enroll if you'd like. Uh, by tomorrow morning, you can find an audio archive of today's program. Also find it on iTunes, some interesting uh, resources there. You can download the chat uh, when you get off the program today. We'd love it if you would fill out a brief survey. Anything confused you at all, uh, please uh, email us at info at IHI.org or if there are any materials you would like to get hold of. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Moore, and our wonderful Northeastern co-op, Rachel Yates. Uh, the music in, uh, that closes and, I should say, opens and closes WIHI, their original arrangements by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. It remains my privilege, getting up to three years of WIHI, Don, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for your participation. Good day, everyone. Mm-hmm.